and welcome to The Word is Resistance, the podcast where we're exploring what our sacred texts have to teach us about living, surviving, and even thriving in the context of empire, tyranny, violence, and repression, the times in which we are now living. What do our sacred stories have to teach us about our role in resistance, in showing up, in liberation? This podcast is designed to be a resource for white people who are realizing that following Jesus in this time and in this country means listening to, learning from, and joining in with the struggle against racism and white supremacy. We welcome your feedback and especially appreciate feedback from and accountability to listeners of color. My name is Nicola Torbett, and I'm one of many lay leaders at First Congregational Church of Oakland. I'm also a member of Showing Up for Racial Justice, or SURGE, and this podcast is a project of SURGE Faith. As I work on the material for this week, I'm thinking a lot about a City Planning Commission meeting I attended a few days ago. Led by Native American community members, those of us giving public comment urged the Oakland City Planning Commission to repeal their decision that would prohibit a local group of indigenous leaders from holding ceremonial sweats on an East Oakland property because of neighbors' concerns about smoke, parking, and noise. Now, I have to confess that I don't like attending planning commission or other city government meetings. They depress me. In fact, some of us have wondered aloud if City Hall might be haunted by Dementors. Remember Dementors, those chilling, soul-sucking Harry Potter spirits whose presence can be detected by the sudden debilitating despair they provoke? Well, I believe Dementors may have taken over City Hall. It's the best explanation I can come up with. You see, in Oakland, we have witnessed any number of proven, dedicated community advocates win local elections, often with the help of their fellow activists, and then inexplicably become tools of gentrification, seemingly unable to stand up to real estate developers and other moneyed interests. We're joking, of course, when we talk about the Dementors, but sometimes I wonder... Sometimes I wonder if the assumptions, the ideological components that make up white supremacy and patriarchy, capitalism and neoliberalism, sometimes I wonder if those assumptions are dementors. Sometimes I think these ideas are spirits that take people over and so rigidly confine our thinking and feeling that we can't resist perpetuating systems of inequality, can't even really think critically about them. I know that when I prepare to speak at city meetings, I have to work hard to stay clear, to free my mind and heart from what is realistic. In other words, what fits comfortably into the governing discourse of those rooms, which after all are steeped in white supremacy from the earliest days of settler colonialism until now. So it's hard to go to those meetings. It's depressing and soul-numbing. But those meetings are where real policy gets made and implemented, policy that has real impacts on our material and spiritual lives. And so it's actually really important to go. And this time, this time, this time I felt like I was at some kind of teach-in or Native American ceremony or interfaith worship service. There was so much deep wisdom dropped by members of the community who spoke during public comment. 
There was so much spiritual power being channeled into that room. And you know what? We won. We were able to shift the frame of the conversation from a neighborhood dispute devoid of history that presumed that all parties stood on equal historical playing ground to what it really was, which was a case of religious discrimination rooted in fear of brown and black people practicing indigenous spirituality. The commission reversed its decision. There's still work to do. There are still details to work out, but the sweats will be allowed to continue. All of this has me thinking about how and even whether Christian discourse has the power and the moral authority to interrupt the governing ideology like that. Can our tradition be sufficiently decolonized so that it too can disrupt the logic of empire, colonialism, and white supremacy? How do we free Christian discourse from the ways it has been steeped in oppressive ideologies and used to perpetuate harm against people of color, native people, queer folks, and practitioners of other faiths? Is it possible? These are some questions I'm bringing with me to this contemplation of the lectionary texts for July 30th. We've got a rich scriptural stew to work with this week. I'm going to be focusing on the Romans passage and the mustard seed parable from Matthew, but I'll also work in a quick nod to the first kings and the pearl of great price along the way. This week's passage from Romans contains what I find to be some of the most beautiful and stirring language of our tradition. Paul writes, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's so beautiful, and it's not without problems. I want to come back to this more than conquerors language, but first I think it's really, really important to linger in a love that is this powerful, so powerful that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation can separate us from it. We can't even separate ourselves from this love. In last week's lectionary psalm, we heard, Even if I make my bed in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me fast. That's from Psalm 139. Even if I make my bed in hell, 
even if I do all the terrible things, even if I sin against God and neighbor, even if I have been oblivious to my privilege and callous to the suffering of my neighbor, even if I have done whatever I can to separate myself from the love of God, it is still right there waiting for me. So if I were planning worship for this week, I'd be tempted to weave this psalm in again. It's such a fitting compliment to what Paul is saying. I think we just can't hear enough about this love these days, when it seems that everything in our culture is aimed at telling us that we're not enough, we are not the right people, we don't have the right appearance, we don't have enough awareness or smarts or ability or net worth. In fact, I think if we try to talk to white people about racism without starting from this deep, broad, all-encompassing love, we are dead in the water. Because our prophetic urging will just sound like more damnation, just another voice telling people they are not okay. So the power of this love, the stickiness, the tenaciousness of it, has to be our starting and ending point. And then there is this conqueror business. There's a particular song that we sing periodically at my church. Maybe you know it. It's called God Made Me. And the bridge goes like this. I'm a conqueror. I'm victorious. I won't be stopped. I won't be stopped. I'm a believer. I'm an achiever. I won't be blocked. I won't be blocked. Now you need to know that this song was written for and is publicly performed by the Mississippi Mass Choir, which is almost, if not entirely black, and situated in the South. And from that position, this language is righteous. It's empowering. It claims boldly and without apology that no matter what any white person thinks of me, no matter what the authorities say, I know who I am. I know that God made me. And so in a fundamental way, I will triumph over the everyday realities of racism and white supremacy that seek to destroy me and block my way. I have heard loud and clear from people of color in our church that this message is important. So we continue to sing the song because one of the things I am working to learn is that not everything has to work for me as a white person. That part of living in multiracial community is allowing my own preferences to be decentered. And the fact remains that I can't sing this song as a white person. Just as I can't really sing many spirituals and other songs written for people whose position is really different from mine. As a white person, the words to God made me ring true in a very different and problematic way. I'm a conqueror. My ancestors at minimum stood by and more likely actively participated in the conquering of indigenous people in this country and the enslavement of Africans as well as the exploitation of Asian, Mexican, and other workers of color. And as a result, by the very nature of my skin color, I can make more headway than people of color in most fields to this day. I'm an achiever, all right, but I will never know how much of my achievement is a result of my own effort and how much is a benefit of white supremacy. Now here I want to say that I think it's important when we're talking to white folks about this, not to discount our hard work entirely. Many white folks do work hard for what we have. Our ancestors also worked hard, many of them. They also had natural gifts and talents, and denying any of that won't get us very far. 
The point to make is that at white, as white folks, we've gotten an extra boost from the disenfranchisement of people of color and the privileging of white folks. I really like John Powell's analogy. It's as if white people are walking up an up escalator and people of color are walking up a down escalator. The same amount of effort is going to get us very different places. So I can't sing that song about being a conqueror. And sometimes I wonder if I can really claim our scriptures either, since they too were created for people in positions very different from my own, people who were systematically disenfranchised. And that is not, by and large, my story. Certainly, if I'm going to approach the Hebrew and New Testament scriptures at all, I need to do it with great humility, in deep prayer, asking that my eyes be opened to what this all means for my context, given how I'm positioned within the narrative. This is where the First Kings passage for this week resonates for me. Here is young Solomon, who knows that he's in the position he's in as newly coronated king because of who his father David was, not because of his own merit or natural ability. And he cries out to God in humility, saying, I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of the people whom you have chosen, a great people, so numerous they cannot be numbered or counted. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, able to discern between good and evil. For who can govern this, your great people? Solomon is grappling here with the fundamental impossibility of any human being deciding for any other. It's an incredible critique of monarchy coming from someone who is about to assume its privileges. And scripture tells us that God was pleased with Solomon's request, pleased that he did not ask for privileges for himself, long life or good fortune, but for the wisdom to be of service to God's people. I think there's something here for us as white folks who want to be in service to all of God's people at this time. How do we cultivate this humility? This is especially hard, I think, for those of us who have experienced oppression ourselves, have not been listened to because of who we are as women or queer people or people raised poor. Those experiences are windows into what oppression feels like, but they do not erase the blindness we have as beneficiaries of white supremacy. And of course, we know that it didn't go that well for Solomon in terms of hanging on to his humility, right? There's something about being made king, being put in a position of imperial leadership that corrupts, which might have something to do with what is going on down at City Hall. And this, I think, brings us to the mustard seed parable, which I think is a very subversive little story, the tiniest of all parables, if you will, but one with the power to undercut our fantasies of Constantinian conquest in the name of Jesus or anything else. It goes like this. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that someone took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all the seeds, but when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. On the surface of it, this is a nice snippet of folk wisdom about how things can start small and unassuming, like 
say, the fledgling Jesus movement, and yet grow into something large, majestic, and at least on the surface, nurturing and sheltering to the life that it overshadows. That's how this passage often gets preached. But I think there might be something else going on here. Because here's the thing about the mustard plant. At best, it grows to be about nine feet tall, with feathery light branches. So the greatest of shrubs, okay, maybe. But a tree that provides habitat for birds, plural? Hardly. As Jim Perkinson puts it, maybe a mustard plant could host a hummingbird's heartbeat for the flicker of a second, but not much more than that. Perkinson argues that Jesus is employing an ironic allusion in this parable that is designed to satirize Roman imperial claims of benevolent nurture for its subjects, a parody that surely would have found a grateful audience in the crowd of poverty-stricken peasant farmers around him who were barely eking out a living after paying exorbitant taxes and tributes to Rome. You see, the image of a tree that provides shelter to living creatures would be a familiar image, a familiar metaphor to Jesus' Jewish audience. This image occurs multiple times in the Hebrew prophetic writings, and each time it refers to overreaching imperial powers who harm God's people while claiming to be protecting and sheltering them. In our own context, it's hard not to make a connection here to our own reliance on militarized police who claim to protect and serve us, often at the cost of killing some of us, especially those who are black or brown. And in those Hebrew scriptures, those trees are coming down. God is going to strip them bare, and they are going to fall hard. Perkinson's argument makes sense to me that here Jesus is undercutting any fantasies that his followers might be harboring, that he is going to lead them to regional dominance, that they would become the next great empire with Jesus at their head. A mustard seed is never going to grow into an imperial tree. And after all, Paul doesn't say that we are conquerors through him who loved us. He says we are more than conquerors. What does this mean? Here again, I'm relying heavily on Jim Perkinson's writing. I hope you'll read his books. I'll put the titles in the references section of the transcript. Anyway, Perkinson ventures that mustard seed plants serve a very particular, rather unglamorous and time-limited purpose. Mustard is, after all, a weed. It is opportunistic, fast-spreading, and invasive. In fact, by the year 200, its cultivation had been circumscribed so that it could only be planted well away from food crops, because otherwise it was likely to take over the whole field. However, and there is no way to know if Jesus or his hearers would have known this, Perkinson certainly doesn't argue that they did, mustard and other similar so-called invasive species serve a very particular purpose and take hold under very particular circumstances, namely in ecosystems that have been damaged, forests that have been clear-cut, soil that has been depleted, maybe by over-farming of monocultural crops, ground that has been poisoned by toxic chemicals, the places where profit and exploitation have done deep harm to the earth 
are exactly the places where mustard is likely to spring up and take off. And the effect of this kind of dense undergrowth is to replenish, heal, and repair the soil so that eventually trees and other native plants can grow up again. At that point, the mustard and other opportunistic species give way to a healthy, restored ecosystem. Mustard lives in order to die that other species may live. Deep, isn't it? I wonder if this might give us some ideas about what it might mean to be more than conquerors. What it might mean to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, as Paul will go on to urge us later in Romans. It might be a lot less grandiose than we had hoped. It might mean not so much winning the world for Christ as one more dominating power, but instead serving alongside communities of other faiths to remediate the soil that has been poisoned by white supremacist, patriarchal, neoliberal, extractive capitalist worldviews. The end result would be not one totalizing system with a Christian God as king, but a whole healthy ecosystem of diverse meaning-making systems with the power to fight off together the dominant worldview that is currently threatening to destroy all life and that is haunting our city halls and other houses of government and depressing everyone who comes near them. I also wonder if white Christians may not be the mustard, the particular pungency that the soil most needs right now, that instead, perhaps what the soil needs is the propagation of voices of color, voices that will likely at first seem disruptive, invasive, even dangerous to the profitable harvest we are trying to reap. What I hear God saying through this week's scriptures is that God is going to trouble the grain fields. God is sowing a disruptive seed that is ultimately a healing seed. And God is going to do this through the least of these, the smallest seed, those most impacted by oppression. In the meantime, we who benefit from the imperial order and profit from the imperial grain field are likely to experience this as loss, as chaos, as descent, not just in terms of financial security, but also in social status being more than conquerors for white folks in this time might mean incurring some significant ego losses, dying into new life. Luckily, Paul reminds us for just such a time as this, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Being more than conquerors means recognizing that there is something beyond loss, beyond obscurity or failure or even death, that beyond all that lies the everlasting love of God. And that love is our true security and the true pearl of great price for which we give our entire lives. Amen. We are building a
For the call to action this week, I'm going to recommend that you take some time to immerse yourself in the perspectives of theologians and other thinkers of color, especially women and LGBTQ folks. Then think about how you can sow those mustard seeds among those who listen to and respect what you have to say. Do this whether or not you instantly agree with those, what those voices have to say. In fact, do it especially if those perspectives challenge you. Go public with your wrestling. Quote people of color, and not just Martin Luther King, in your sermons. Post quotes from people of color on Facebook and Twitter. Link to bloggers of color from your blog. Talk about the ideas you're ingesting with your friends. I'll list some good starting points in the resources section of this show's transcript. Second, I invite you to find out what is happening in your local government, since that is the level of governance where you can have the most direct influence. What decisions are before them that have material impact for people of color? What are people of color advocating for in your community, and how can you come into solidarity on those issues? Think and pray about how you can leverage scripture and Christian teaching to help local officials break out of narrow political realism and act in the service of justice rather than economic and political expedience. Thank you for joining me today. As always, the transcript this week will include a bunch of resources at the end to support your action. Let us know how it goes by commenting on our SoundCloud or Facebook pages. We'll be posting up the next podcast by Tuesday, August 1st. That one will feature Reverend Ann Dunlap discussing the lectionary texts for August 6th. You can find out more about Surge at showingupforracialjustice.org, and our podcast lives at SoundCloud. Search on The Word is Resistance. You can interact with us there if you have questions or need help with action ideas. Transcripts are available on our website, which include references, credits, and copyright information. The music you hear is a live recording of a song gifted to the freedom movement by Dr. Vincent Harding, We Are Building Up a New World. The group you hear singing is No Enemies, a multiracial group of activists and musicians in Denver, Colorado, who come together for movement choir practice to bring singing back into direct actions and other movement spaces. This particular choir practice is from December 2014, and it's being led by Minister Daryl J. Walker. We are deeply grateful to the Freeney Harding family for letting us use this song for this podcast. Our sound editor this week is Paul Stewart, and we're excited to welcome him to our team. As always, blessings to you in all that you do to resist injustice and in all that you do to build up a new world. Until next time, I'm Nicola Torbett. I shine, give love.